The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. Let's start with the Senzo Miyua trial because that has resumed today. Remember, it was adjourned on Friday because one of the lawyers fell ill. Five men in the dock for the murder of the Bufana Bufana star in 2014. He was uh, shot at his uh, then-girlfriend, Kelly Kumalo's home. Miwa's friend, Mtogozisi Twala, has been testifying. He's now under cross-examination. He's going to have to face cross-examination from various different lawyers because the accused each have different lawyers. So, Komotsu Modise, EWN reporter, is in court for us. Uh, we'll chat to her in a short while. But just to give you a sense of what actually is happening there, a comparison being drawn between the testimonies of the different friends. So Senzomi was friends each giving evidence. Um, Tokozisi Twala is spending his second week on the stand. But remember, his other friend uh, also testified before. Komoto and Morise in court for us. Komoto, good afternoon to you. Um, what exactly has been happening this morning? Good afternoon, Mandy. So yes, Tokozisi Twala back on the stand and um, we heard Sipora uh, Musebele, who's the advocate and uh, the attorney for the first two accused, really picking up from the issues around the scuffle that Twala's been telling the court about. So according to Twala, um, there had been a bit of a scuffle between Meiwa, Dumelo Mazala, Zandi Kumalo, as well as uh, Zandi and Kelly's mother, who, according to Twala, were actually fighting one of the intruders. And so we heard Amosipele today in his line of questioning asking, you know, what happened to the second intruder. Of course, the version by those in the house is that there were two intruders, Mandy, who entered the house and demanded cell phones and money. And so Ramosipane had put it to Twala that he'd spoken about the second intruder, which is the taller one, the one who actually had a a knife and not a gun, according to Twala. And he wants uh, Twala to place him in the kitchen where the scuffle was. Let's take a listen to where there was a bit of a contention between uh, Twala as well as Ramosipane. Now, your story is that the deceased and Tumelo Madala were involved in the so-called scuffle with the second intruder, that will be the tall of the, the, the taller of the two intruders. Utumelo Kanyanaya Umufi, Bobabi, the Babi, the Scafu Kadidalo Umut, both of them were involved with the second one. Yes. Okay, yeah. We are put together. Who showed me the lock? Is that what I said? That was your evidence in chief. Mina, that's not Lomut. I say with the what I said was that the scuffle was between the two of them, referring to the deceased and Dumelo, together with the two intruders. I then included Zandile and her mother. I never said the two of them were involved with the tall one. So that's Mtokozisi Twala's version of events. Uh, but now this, of course, is going to be compared to Tumelo's version because he's also testified. So I imagine the defense advocates are going to be looking at that, Khamotso. Yes, and that's important because Tumelo Mazala had actually said the tall intruder, that's the second intruder, and according to Mazala, that's actually Bongani Danzi, who pointed, I remember Tumelo pointed Bongani Danzi um, in that dark identification. He said that Meiwa and 
uh, it was actually, he, he pointed out that you were particularly fighting or having a struggle with that taller intruder. Now, we can hear there's a bit of a difference there because not only does Twala say it was both Meiwa and Tumelo, when Tumelo said it was only Meiwa, but Twala also says Zandi's mother and Zandi were there beating him with a crutch, whereas Tumelo had said Zandi's mother and Zandi were beating the shorter intruder with a crutch. So those are all small uh, uh, technical differences in those statements. And of course, that's going to be um, form a, a, a large part of the cross-examination from the other lawyers who are, are going to have their chance. Khamoto, thank you very much. Khamoto uh, Medise, EWN reporter in court for us. Well, let's have a listen in uh, to what's happening in that Senzo Miyua uh, trial at the moment. And the sound is courtesy of the SABC. Although I didn't take much note, but I think that they are facing, facing each other. It's the kitchen door this side, and also this side is the kitchen door. So you jump on the neighbor's yard into the section that's got the kitchen door, correct? So the nearest hard door in Chapele was the dining door or the, should I say the sitting door I don't know how the situation is inside but when I jump, I jump on the side of the dining or the sitting uh, uh, room door the kitchen is on the other side that is how I saw it on uh, the photo so that is the evidence of Mtogozisi Twala busy giving at his evidence there in the Senzo Miyiwa murder trial. The Midday Report. Staying in the court, the murder trial of the murdered uh, former ANC Youth League Secretary General Sindiso Magarka continuing in the Peter Maritzburg High Court today. His former bodyguard, Takabonwa Ngubane, uh, under cross-examination by defence advocates there. And Klantla Mabaso, KZN's EWN reporter, is there for us. Uh, what's happening in court today? Well, afternoon, Mendy, the proceeding has now been adjourned to tomorrow because Takabonwa Ngubane the former bodyguard of Cindy Somakaka has concluded his um, testimony, but also cross-examination by defense advocate Shane Matthews here in the Peter Maritzburg High Court. Um, uh, who was also in the car, you'd recall, when Cindy Somakaka was shot uh, in Umzimikulu back in uh, 2017, uh, July. It was supposed to take the stand shortly after Ngubane, but uh, we are told that she had an emergency and could no longer continue. So the matter has now been adjourned to tomorrow. But interestingly, the court has learned from Ngubania that just two days before the incident, the the red BMW that's been mentioned here that uh, the gunman actually arrived with or the gunman used as a getaway car during the assassination attempt on Makata and his colleagues' lives. Uh, we are told that uh, Ngubania actually told the court that he actually saw this particular car two days exactly before the incident, uh, you know, driving around Cindy Somakaka's house several times. Um, he also told the court that 
uh, when he was hired to Makata's bodyguard, there was someone who was already working as Makata's protector. But there, he told the court that that other protector, mainly, had actually went home for holidays. Uh, but has never returned. Till this day, he tells the court that he did not know the actual whereabouts of this particular project. I mean. Nklantla, thank you very much. Nklantla Mabaso, KZN EWN reporter who's been in court there um, with this matter of uh, Sindiso Magaka, uh, the former ANC Youth League Secretary General. His former bodyguard was testifying there. That matter has now been postponed for the day. The Midday Report. And just to keep you updated on the other court matter we are watching, the Ama Piano producer and club DJ, uh, Timba Sunnyboy Sekowe, he's better known as DJ Maporisa. Uh, he's appearing in court today uh, because of a case of assault uh, that was uh, deposed to, uh, that was opened by his girlfriend, Tuli Pongolo. So that matter is appearing in court today. We are hoping to speak to our journalist on that matter. Um, but it looks like proceedings underway there at the moment because DJ Maporisa in court for assault charges. Knowledge is power, but no power source is infinite. Make sure you keep your battery of knowledge charged with the EWN newsletter. Delivered to your smartphone, tablet, or PC daily. Get the latest news, sports, business, polls, videos, and more to keep you updated. Eyewitness News. There's no better lunchtime read than the EWN newsletter. Sign up at ewn.co.za forward slash newsletter. Eyewitness News. In touch, in tune, and independent. Hi, Mandy. Norman here in Pretoria. Um, I'm just following the developments in the public protector case. I hear now that uh, the public protector, the standing in public protector, has found four million. I'm asking where did this four million come from? Because all along they've been saying she has exhausted uh, the the budget. So I don't know where, where is this case going to end up. And they also, she she seems to be public protector or public protector Tulima Tonsela seems to be wanting to choose uh, her own. Uh, Thank you very much for that WhatsApp voice note. So that was my question is where is the money coming from now? Because all of a sudden there is another 4 million rand that is available for the suspended public protector Busisiwe Mkwebane to defend herself at the Section 194 inquiry into her fitness to hold office. That has resumed again more than a month since the public protector was in the witness seat giving that testimony. The inquiry stalled because the money for illegal fees ran out and the Section 194 committee continued to sit to go through evidence uh, before it. Lindsay Dentlinger is our reporter on this story. Lindsay, good, good afternoon to you. Where is the money coming from? Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, that money we learned actually last week in Parliament, we learned from the Deputy Public Protector that Treasury has permitted the Public Protector's Office to use a budget surplus from the 2021-2022 financial year. Uh, you will know that the Public Protector's Office has been dealing with a lot f- uh, fewer complaints uh, you know, during the pandemic, et cetera. And so they had a little bit of budget left over. And that little bit of budget is 4 million rand. And Treasury has now given the Public Protector's Office the permission to use that money to pay, um, well, some outstanding invoices, but also essentially, Mandy, it will be the end of the line. That's as much money as they say is available to continue paying for Busisiwa and Kobani's legal defence until the end of this process. Okay. Now, now, Lindsay, why is the inquiry not restarted with the continuation of evidence? What is, what is happening there? 
So, Busisiwem Kobani, the suspended public protector, uh, uh, arrived here in Parliament today without a legal team. Uh, she was allowed to make some representations uh, to the committee. Amongst those, she's of the opinion that when the money ran out at the end of March, uh, it essentially signaled the termination of the services of her legal team. And she is of the view that the public protector's office uh, has to engage them from scratch, enter into new agreements, set new t- terms of reference. She doesn't believe this four million rand is going to be enough. Uh, and so she's also going to head to the court. She has already filed papers in the constitutional court over this um, matter of her legal fees. So those are some of the reasons that she's advanced before the committee today. And they have essentially acceded to her request to postpone proceedings until next week, Monday. But the chairperson making it very clear that this is not because they've got a gun to their heads, if you will, because she's approaching uh, the constitutional court. They say they're going to give her more time to sort out these matters regarding her legal team. But Mandy, let's just take a listen to some of those uh, representations she made to the committee earlier today. When the deputy public protector wrote that letter on the 1st of March, copying the committee chair, the speaker and the justice portfolio committee chair, exactly that uh, created chaos for this uh, particular committee. And unfortunately, you cannot say you are not uh, 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 involved in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the process. Um, so it's for the court to advise. Unfortunately, there is history. You would say that, yes, there's concord judgments on the matter because, yes, the two matters are relating to my matter before the courts. They said, no, you can proceed. And um, we know that parliament, the very same parliament in the past with the Gandla matter, you proceeded, you dealt with the matters, and the concord had to tell you that you shouldn't have handled the way you handled the Gandla matter. So, Lindsay, what argument is Mkwebani advancing then for, for calling for the postponement of these proceedings? Well, so she says she cannot get involved, Mandy, in um, speaking directly to attorneys, Senejo attorneys who have been representing her up until now before these proceedings. That agreement was entered into by the Public Protector's Office. It's one of their preferred service advisors, uh, providers, and she, um, the Public Protector says she cannot get involved in who's going to represent her going forward. She can certainly not also work with that budget that we've just spoken about that's been allocated. And so all these matters, she says, the Public Protector's Office needs to clarify. But ideally, Mandy, she wants these proceedings to be put on hold uh, until we can hear from the Constitutional Court about who is responsible for paying her legal uh, her legal fees. You will recall some years ago when the Constitutional Court ruled that the rules of Parliament at that time were unfair and she should be allowed legal representation. It didn't quite make a finding on who should be paying for it. Uh, and this is something that Busisiwem Kobani says the Con Court must make a determination on. Hence, she has also cited that new Kandla matter saying Parliament has been found wanting in their processes in the past. Uh, but the chairperson of the committee saying they, until there's an interdict uh, stopping these proceedings, that is not going to be a reason why they are going to grant her a postponement. So that is going to go to the Constitutional Court. But here's the public protector again speaking on that matter. Unfortunately, the issue of the funds is impacting on your work and the speed of resolving this matter. When the deputy public protector wrote that letter on the 1st of March, copying the committee chair, the speaker and the justice portfolio committee chair, exactly that uh, created chaos for this uh, particular committee.
Thank you to Lindsay Dentlinger for bringing us the latest uh, on the public protector's inquiry into her fitness to hold office. The Midday Report. So you may have seen last week the EFF leader Julius Malema tweeted about uh, the fact that 71 garbage trucks were missing in Ikureleni. Uh, so that became a, a big issue. Um, uh, so th- there's been some consternation around this. Tini Madia, the EWN Associate Politics Editor, reporting today that uh, the municipality there is insisting that there are no stolen trucks and it has pointed out that Malema's own councillors together with other parties in council had actually agreed to get rid of the vehicles that they considered redundant or obsolete. So Tiddy is in studio today to join us about this. So Tiddy, uh, what, where are the garbage trucks firstly? The garbage trucks, from what I understand, are actually at the depots, broken down at the depots. On Friday, mind you, after making the allegations, so Julius Malema says they're missing, possibly stolen. His councillors in the Kurulani have a media briefing say this is what they also believe. They go on to speak about the issue of unpaid invoices and pretty much ask questions about the health of the municipality, saying that there are concerns. And then on Friday, they do a physical audit of these trucks. They go to depots. The trucks that are broken down are there waiting to be auctioned next month. Mind you, the EFF in February on the 23rd, in a sitting, agreed to a request from finance that these should be gotten rid of. They are high mileage, too expensive to fix, and that it just won't work. Mm. It's best to sell them off. They had agreed. So they then go to the media and say, oh, we don't know where these trucks are. We believe that they've been stolen. This is just one of many things, Mandy, that are unfolding in the city. There are questions about instructions as well where MMCs are trying to flex muscle, if you may. So finance MMC Nkululeko Dunga has uh, insisted that they believe the waste compactors were actually stolen. So is he sticking to this idea that they've been stolen? You know, Mandy, I've been waiting for Nkululeko Dunga to respond to my questions all weekend. I'm still waiting. He has said he'll get back to me. He still hasn't. Um, But even EFF members who went on these are saying he's overzealous. They believe he misled Julius Malema leading to that particular tweet saying that that's a, that's misinformation. He's excited to try and deal with a DA uh, that was in charge just before, but that there are no truths. I know that the ANC tomorrow is holding a media briefing. Some insiders have said that the ANC and Kudlene have been quite jittery because these parties are now in an alliance of yeah. sorts. So they've been quite jittery to come out and say something, but the ANC has contacted me saying that we are having a media briefing tomorrow. We also want to speak about what's happening because all of these, Mandy, have dire consequences on the standing of the Metro. The Auditor General's office, from what I understand, has heard some of these allegations and is questioning mm. what is happening if 200 million is unpaid invoices, if waste trucks go missing, what is happening in a but, but it's not about the waste trucks. The waste trucks are just uh, uh, symbolic. Side. They mm. are um, emblematic of what is actually going on. This is actually about the relationship between various political parties and the ability to govern, right? I think there's a little bit of that, Mandy, but there's also also a little bit about the role of service providers and tenders and contracts in these municipalities and how political parties see this as a way towards getting funding for their own election campaigns. I think we must be very weary of what happens in our metros in, coming, in the coming months. When you're hearing that an MMC, a political head, wants to have an imbizo with service providers, hmm. that sounds very concerning. That sounds very problematic. And those are the kind of things that are coming out of a at the moment, where MMCs want to find themselves in the room. And they don't 
belong anywhere near procurement. We all know that. So there are question marks to be had about what's happening in the metros. Tidi, thank you very much. Tidi Madia, EWN's Associate Politics Editor, with uh, that story about the, the trucks in Ikuruleni. The Midday Report. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Mandy, I just want to know why are my taxes paying for somebody else's defence when there are schools to be built, hospitals to be built? There is so much need, electricity, all of that, and now I've got to pay for one individual's four million, four and a half million legal legal battle. I mean, it's just absolutely ludicrous. This country is totally, totally stuffed. Debbie in Santa. So look, Debbie, I don't think the country is totally stuffed. I, I still think that uh, we need to have some perspective here, but I hear your frustrations over this issue of the public protector, the suspended public protector getting another 4 million rand for her, her legal fees on the top of all the other millions that she has received. The argument has been that she is entitled within the constitution uh, to get this this de- defence um, because she was the public protector. That unfortunately is the way that the law works here. Um, but uh, there has to be a cap. There has to be a, a reasonable amount because I agree. I think the money could be far better spent on infrastructure and on other service delivery issues as well. Um, but that's that's the way that it works. Um, uh, the fact that Busisiwa Mkwebane is uh, getting another 4 million rand, as we heard from Lindsay Dentlinger there. ESCOM told us over the weekend that uh, it's ramping load shedding up to stage from stage 5 to stage 6, effective from yesterday. So we're in stage 6 at the moment. Uh, that's because uh, it's aged coal-fired power plants have gone down again. Uh, that includes units at Majuba, at Madupi, at Tutuka. And uh, all of this, of course, against the backdrop of that court judgment on Friday um, that the Pretoria High Court ruling ordering Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon to ensure that electricity is guaranteed to public health uh, establishments, schools and police service buildings as well within 60 days. So let's uh, unpack this a bit further with Matthew Cruz, energy expert at Home Energy. Matthew, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. We always knew that when it got cold and rainy and winter struck, we would have to deal with more rolling blackouts because of the coal-fired power plants going down. So is this pretty much in line with expectations? Hello, and thank you for having me on the show. And yes, yeah, it is um, in line with expectations, but it is unfortunately almost exceeding the projections that we have made uh, for winter. Um, and to unpack this a little bit further, uh, the, the current projections are that we'll hit potentially stage eight during load shedding um, as one of our highest stages in wintertime. And this is because of seasonality, where we see an increase of 4,000 megawatts of demand on the grid during winter time, because we use more electricity in winter to heat our homes, to cook food, and to have um, things like showers and heat up our geysers. So that, that 4,000 megawatts is not yet seen, actually, on the grid as demand as yet, because we're not actually into winter proper yet. But yet, we're still sitting at stage six at the moment. And with the current situation, we have about 24,000 megawatts that are off the grid um, and that's from a generation capacity of 44,000 megawatts. That's so more than half. And with our current capacity that we can actually provide to the grid, mm-hmm. if we hit now stage, um, you know, this, this, if we go two months forward, we can actually hit stage 10 at the moment. So we really need these these units to come back online that are currently offline. 
That's a very ominous. Thank you very much for that, uh, Matthew, mm-hmm. uh, the potential of stage 10. So so what could happen between now and then? Um, as you say, this is worse than expectations. So how do they ensure mm-hmm. that these various uh, coal-fired power stations are uh, able to, to come online? And we know how um, fickle they are as well. So uh, we mm-hmm. have to brace for the worst. Yeah, so we're sitting in a situation where we're kind of hoping what has historically happened and what has consistently been the case from ESCOM will not happen. So it's a, it's a hope that we will um, not have things so bad this winter, but it's it's more reality, you know, if we're going to look at, you know, what a realistic projection <clears throat> to actually anticipate stage 8 or stage 10 actually coming in a couple of months. And in terms of what they are doing, they are working uh, around the clock to try and bring the units at, uh, and the units that I mentioned are on at Camden and Gina and Majuba. Mutland to the power stations back online, but we have to consider that this is kind of what their task was doing anyway as an mm. electricity generation company. That business as usual is to bring things back from maintenance or bring things back from being yeah. breaking down and put them online. So we just have to wait and see whether they're actually able to do that, but it's unlikely that they will. So we have this court order that was made on Friday last week, um, which uh, mm-hmm. effectively forces the public enterprises minister to ensure that there is power to hospitals, to schools and to police stations. How is mm-hmm. that feasible? How could that happen if there is no power? So it's, it's going to be difficult. And it's, it's interesting interplay that has to happen now um, between um, complying with this order and then not escalating loading further. And, and to explain that, um, but the places that are listed, the schools and, and police um, stations, they're, they're typically in neighborhoods um, that themselves offset from a substation that powers the whole neighborhood. There's not typically like one line of electricity that can go exclusively just to the power station that you can turn on, but the rest of the neighborhood stays on loading. So <clears throat> what it's doing is saying, actually, where a police station is or a school, those neighborhoods need to not experience loading and have guaranteed power. And by doing that, then you're going to have all these pockets throughout the country of big places, big neighborhoods, where there's electricity while the rest of the country sits without power. So you actually can potentially increase load shedding by enacting this order. So there's an interesting interplay now between, okay, which, you know, which police stations and, and schools and, and public utilities can we, can we actually um, have on uh, without having too much power then going to the surrounding areas. And, and then from that, determining, okay, these ones make sense, this, this power these ones, these ones don't make sense because it, for instance, powers the whole of Constantia, and we can't do that because yeah. now Constantia is exempt from loading. So that's an example of the mm. interplay that's going to have to happen going forward now. Matthew, thank you very much. Matthew Cruz, energy expert at Home Energy, speaking to us about uh, that very ominous power situation. The Midday Report. Well, let's look at the situation with water now because the city of Tswane has launched a 33 million rand water security project in collaboration with a Danish city. Uh, Tswane and the city of Aarhus, will, I'm not sure if I pronounced that properly, will officially launch a three-year collaborative project to improve Tswane's water security. That launch taking place today. Ndaedzo Netonje, EWN reporter, is there for us. Ndaedzo, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Tell us about this project that's been launched. Yeah, good afternoon, Mandy. Uh, so this project is more on uh, addressing uh, ongoing challenges where uh, there are leakages and bringing in new technology to pick up uh, leakages in old infrastructure within the city. There is three million rand is what uh, the Danish government has um, pledged to invest in this project. It's actually phase two of the project. The first phase was... Uh, 
launched back in 2018. Now, Mandy, you and I know that uh, the biggest problem in the city of Tuan, as far as water uh, infrastructure is concerned, is in Hamanskwal, where communities there, for the longest of time, have not had clean running water. And uh, I did pose a question to uh, the executive mayor uh, of the city of Tuan, Celia Brink, on this to say, uh, how does this uh, 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 project assist in uh, the challenges uh, that Thomas Crow faces? And it was clear to say that it doesn't even come close uh, to assisting. Uh, and he made this admission that uh, the city of Tuane is simply unable to address the problems at uh, Hamas Kral and is going to take some collaborative effort between national government, the city of Tuane itself, and perhaps even uh, the private sector, because as things stand, the financial situation in Tuane, even with this small uh, 33 million rand invested, it can't even come close to uh, uh, addressing the bigger challenges of water infrastructure uh, in the city. Ndaito, thank you very much. Ndaito Natonje, EWN reporter who is uh, at the launch of that project, uh, the collaboration between the city of Tuane and the Danish city of Aarhus, the 33 million rand water security project. The Midday Report. In Durban, the tourism in Darba underway, the opening plenary session hosted by industry le- leaders, including the tourism deputy minister, Amos Mahlalela. Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter. Uh, tell us about what's happening at the tourism in Darba. I suppose the big story over the weekend was the fact that the acting CEO of SA Tourism, Temba Kumalo, who was meant to be on the program, has since resigned. Good afternoon, Mandy. That's correct. So we're in a uh, cold and somewhat gloomy city of Durban, uh, but that hasn't stopped the colourful uh, picture of uh, that, that colourful display of the city and its uh, business potential in terms of the business sector. Uh, we've got about 5,000 delegates that are expected to take part in this endeavour over the next couple of uh, days, and we've got tourism officials that are expected to also grace the stages of this endeavour. That includes Tourism Minister Patricia DeLille, her deputy who spoke, uh, who spoke earlier, apologies, Bandi Amos Mahalela, as well as SA Tourism Executives. Rightfully, you did say that the acting CEO um, recently resigned, um, you know, to explore other opportunities abroad. And in his place now is Mamasonto Global, who was the COO. But the SA Tourism and the sector overall doesn't appear um, to want the uh, Indaba to be um, you know, upstaged by those issues of governance within SA tourism and some of the uh, fallout within the tourism sector that we've seen over the past couple of months or weeks, um, Mandy. So we are expecting that it will go ahead despite those um, issues that the tourism sector has seen. Now, what we did hear from the Deputy Minister speaking earlier, Amos Makalela, is that he's optimistic that the sector will rebound to pre-pandemic uh, levels, um, you know, um, and, and he's particularly hoping that KZN will also rebound. Uh, I mean, KZN as a province alone, um, you know, has seen uh, or at least has contributed 10%. Tourism has contributed 10% to the GDP of the province. So he's also admitted, Mandy, that there are a number of issues that government does need to address in order to ensure that tourism uh, rebounds. Those issues of safety, the country's uh, unstable electricity supply, 
policy issues that impact on the ease of doing business in the country. But he says government is on top of that. And he spoke about some of the funding opportunities that are available or the mechanisms that government will provide in order to get that up and running. So we're just going to hear from uh, the Deputy Minister of Tourism, Amos Marcelino, speaking about that, Mandy. I'm pleased that to announce that the Department of Tourism uh, in the country plans to spend almost 300 million in the next financial year developing on enterprise and transforming the tourism sector. We understand the importance of SMEs and their role in the economy's growth and development. Therefore, we will focus on improving our expenditure towards these businesses. Additionally, we are planning to train 250 SMEs on norms and standards and will spend about 50 million on the enterprise development and transformation. Our tourism incentive program has also set aside almost 250 million to stimulate growth and development in the tourism sector by providing financial assistance to privately owned tourism businesses. The Deputy Tourism Minister Amos Mahlalela speaking there at the opening of the tourism in Daba. The Midday Report. So you remember that last year, in April last year, Mia Lindeke on EWN told us the story about Gibson Nzamande. Gibson was a waste reclaimer working on the streets of Santon. He had been doing that for uh, a good four years or so, but he was also studying for his master's degree, um, but he he wasn't able to study because he needed finances. And more than 200,000 Rand was donated by corporates and generous, generous South Africans to a fund created to assist him. So Mia Lindeke has written a a follow-up for the Daily Maverick uh, on what has happened to Gibson. And she joins us now. Mia, good afternoon to you. Great to have you back on on 702 and Cape Talk. Thanks for for your time. You went to go see Gibson on Monday. How's he doing? He's doing really great, uh, Mandy. Gibson Zamande has received a letter from the University of Johannesburg um, that is confirming that he has now passed his master's degree with 68%. Um, and what a lovely present for him. You know, hard work does pay off. Um, I spent some time with him in his residence at the UJ campus in Dornfontein where he still has that diary, the diary that I uh, browsed through a year ago while he was telling me his heartbreaking story. He was still pushing his trolley of recyclables through the oncoming traffic of Santon. And he still has that diary. And he says that diary is actually the one thing that kept him going. And um, it's almost unbelievable to, to see that he has now passed his master's and he will be graduating in October. But let's listen to a bit of a sound from him and what what he says that this journey has meant for him. Yeah, I think like that four years, a four year experience, you know, on the street, you know, like four years in the wilderness, you know, like taught me a lot, you know, yeah, to just respect life, you know, because life can change in two seconds, you know. Without that experience, maybe I wouldn't be here today, you know. It helped me a lot, even though I was suffering, you know, but those trials, tribulations, and circumstances, whatever, 
they teach they taught me you know so many things you know in life so Mia, take us back to to last year when you first did the story uh, on Gibson in Zamande. His life changed radically after that story aired. Remind us about what happened. Yes. So after some family disputes, he was busy studying. Um, he had his honours degree and he was busy writing his proposal for his masters. And due to some family disputes, uh, his mother passed away, and the family then sold his belongings, sold his house. He ended up on the streets. Um, unfortunately, he slept under a bush near the uh, Rivonia Road. He was collecting recyclables during the night. Um, obviously, very scared of you know people attacking him and and people you know exposing him to drugs. Uh, but he kept everything intact. He did not use any drugs, and he really tried his best to keep his life, you know, get his life back on track. He, on, during the night, he even wa- uh, visited some of the public libraries to go and work on his proposal um, for his master's, but he just didn't have the funds. Um, we then told the story of Gibson's Monday, turned to the listeners, and uh, we managed to raise 200,000 rand. Um, which then the UJ academics then heard of, and they give, gave him a place to stay in a residence at the Durenfontein campus. Um, they also gave him a bit of money just to feed him daily. Um, he's been studying very hard. He now got his master's degree. Uh, he says that he actually hasn't used much of those funding that we raised for him, Mandy. Um, he says that if he is not successful in enrolling for a scholarship for his PhD, he's going to use some of those money that he has actually mm. invested so that he can Amazing. then enroll for his PhD. Amazing, Mia. Thank you so much for bringing us this story. You can go and read it in the Daily Maverick as well. Uh, Mia Lindeke, it's amazing how one story can change someone's life. The Midday Report. Today is World Ovarian Cancer Day and uh, a newly released book, a podcast by Milani Favut, the political analyst uh, with the title Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy aims to break the cycle of silence which we see around ovarian cancer. There are an incredible amount of hysterectomies that uh, that take place, that are performed every year, but it's the kind of thing that people don't always speak about. So Milani Favut has uh, told the story about how she went for her annual gynecological checkup and despite having no symptoms, an ovarian growth the size of a grapefruit was discovered. A few days later, a radical hysterectomy was performed. So today on on Ovarian Cancer Day. We are joined by Milani Favut. Milani, good afternoon to you. Thank you so much for your time. Why have you decided to to focus attention and become a, a warrior for ovarian cancer? Well, thank you, Mandy. The, the thing about it is that it's, first of all, quite common. One out of 78 women will eventually be diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I was lucky that in the end I was one of 3% women with that kind of tumor that wasn't cancer. But for two weeks I lived with this whole fear that, and doctors told me, 80% chance that it would be um, cancerous. Um, and it's one of the deadliest cancers that exist because it is silent, as I discovered as well. these growths can happen and you will have absolutely no symptoms. So if I didn't go for my annual gynae appointment with an ultrasound, they most probably would have missed it. Mm. Um, I was told our organs as women are very polite. They make space, Mm -hmm. um, especially in that area because they assume that it is a pregnancy. So first of all, for me, there's the importance that women should absolutely um, have annual checkups if they can afford it with gynecologists and especially when they go over 50, over 55, insist 
on also getting ultrasound scans so that they can check for for ovarian growth. But the other issue is um, that the survival rate, partly because it's often discovered very late, um, is, is is very very low, and and around 29% of five year survival rate. And part of the problem is that it's so difficult to diagnose whether it is cancerous or not. And this is why I've become a little bit of a warrior around this. The only real way is for them to cut into you and take out the growth mm. and then have it um, taken, checked out by the lab. And usually they will do preemptively then hysterectomy because right. they don't want to go in later again. And that has got to do a lot with the, the lack of money that is spent in terms of researching ovarian cancer. So millions of, of women do go through uh, hysterectomies. They have this procedure. It's rarely spoken mm. about, but there's also very basic information and support available to women both pre- and post-op. Totally. And that's why I decided to do the podcast. Um, I discovered that women were really going to Facebook groups to get the support that they need. Um, you know, usually you will have your 10 minutes with a gynecologist. You would have the surgery, usually with a surgeon, a specialized gynecologist. And then if you're lucky, you see the surgeon six weeks later and they will send you off. Whereas there's a massive process of healing, which takes much longer than anybody could have told me. It took literally months before I was 100% fine again. And then secondly, there are often also very intense emotional sides to hysterectomy, um, whether there is cancer involved or not. And so for me, it was a real labor of love then to put mm. this podcast and write this book to, to give women some support when they go through through these yeah. fairly radical invasions into their bodies. Milani, thank you so much. Milani Favut, political analyst. Uh, the book is called Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy, the podcast available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Such important lessons there on World Ovarian Cancer Day. The Midday Report. Let's give you a quick, quick update now on that breaking story coming out of SAFA. SAFA confirming that the CEO, Tebukho Motlante, has resigned. Uh, his resignation has been accepted. And Lydia Munyapau is the new SAFA CEO. Lawrence Akola is a senior journalist at Disky Times. Lawrence, good afternoon to you. What do we know about why Tebukho Motlante has, res- has resigned and has been replaced? Um, obviously, there were some reports in the media that there was like a few allegations of, you know, being spied on in his office, um, being told to cut down the SAFAS, uh by at least half. And there was many things that was alleged in that. But the press conference today was to uh, deny or rather um, go against the authenticity of the leaked resignation letter to the media. And they said that they didn't have his signature on. He left, and that was all. Um, no questions were allowed. And then the rest of the press conference uh, ensued with Gordani introduced um, the new CEO. So Lydia Munyapau is the new CEO. Uh, she was the COO. What are our expectations mm. now? And uh, are we just going to move on from all of these uh, reports and allegations that we heard? Um, I don't think people obviously believe much of it. That was, you know, just... I think it was kind of like PR um, because obviously there's a woman World Cup but, um, that is underway and that is her first task to lead us, um, lead the bird to try and secure the 2027 FIFA Women's World Cup. And that's why it wasn't dragged on. It was an immediate uh, appointment. Um, they said she hasn't signed a contract, but the appointment was accepted and uh, agreed upon last night. Um so, yeah, I think they were just trying to, you know, steer away from any controversy um, with regards to going forth with the bird. 
Lawrence, thank you so much. Uh, Lawrence Kohler, senior journalist at Disky Times, explaining to us today why Safa all of a sudden has a new CEO. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. Latest news, breaking stories, expert analysis. All you need to know. This is the Midday Report.